1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their podcaster essentials kit. The Lyra mic and headphones that come in it are amazing, and they're the perfect, affordable way to start your own podcast, if you've ever wanted to do such a thing. This week, we take a left turn. I invited a chef to be my guest. His name is Jay Rifle, and he just beat Bobby Flay with a mincemeat pie. And that's why I reached out. His Supper Club Edible History takes recipes from ancient manuscripts and recreates them to give diners a literal taste of history. But he didn't start out as a chef. We talk about his early life, somehow dual enrolling in high school and college, and finding an interesting loophole, writing movies in L.A., and then eventually leaving to bake bread in the Midwest. We also discuss how bread is like puppies, whipped cream guilt. Ordering herbs from witches, and a whole lot more. Jay gives us a little behind-the-scenes peek at how cooking competitions are created, as he's been on both Chopped and Beat Bobby Flay. Check out Brooklyn-based Edible History on social media. Go to ediblehistorynyc.com to check out some amazing menus. Follow us at PerformanceANX on social media. Rate and review us, please. Merch is available at performanceanx.threadless.com, and we love coffee, and you can treat us if you like at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. This story takes some really interesting twists and turns, like a pretzel. So grab a mead and a plate of table cheese or fruits and nuts, and settle in to Jay Rifle on Performance Anxiety, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family.
2: Hi, this is Jay Rifle. I'm from Edible History Supper Club. Uh, We have a cookbook coming out called The History of the World in 10 Dinners, and I'm on the Performance Anxiety Podcast. You want to call it more? Hey, this is Jay Rifle. Hey, this is Jay Rifle. Wow, that's really bad now. I had one in me, I guess. Hey, this is Jay Reifel on the Performance Anxiety Podcast. Um, I'm the executive chef at Edible History. We also have a cookbook coming out in probably 2023 called The History of the World in 10 Dinners. You can follow me on Instagram and follow Edible History. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, oh. Alright, let me pull up my notes here, because I have some. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. No, no. I hope, hopefully you don't need them, but we'll see. I mean, yeah. there's some weird stuff in what you do, so. Yes, there is. <laughs> I have notes about the weird stuff. That oh, no. That's good. <laughs> well, I know you've, we, we spoke a little earlier in the week and, you know, you you've actually led a couple different professional <laughs> lives so i want to talk a little bit about as much of it as we can and uh, it's let's see it's two o'clock so i may be taking a pull on my it, my uh buffalo trace here
2: can't argue with that
1: ah uh, there we go it's a lazy sunday so it's uh,
2: <laughs> indeed
1: it's it, it, I think it's necessary today. all right so what you do okay and and so for the the listeners I'm gonna explain that how I discovered you and what you do one of I love food I love eating I really enjoy cooking I don't know anything about it I've never been trained on any of it so some of my questions may be very basic for you so no, no. please just bear with me um, but my wife and I love to watch Beat Bobby Flay <laughs> And so we were watching it one night and Jay comes on and it's, you win the battle and it's, you challenge Bobby to mincemeat pie. And I thought it was crazy because I, they mentioned in your bio that you work with a lot of historical recipes. And I remember I had a uh, a great uncle who's a priest who loved mincemeat pie and he would come over for thanksgiving and he was the they would always have a mincemeat pie for him and he was the only one that ate it because it sounded <laughs> absolutely disgusting <laughs> but watching you prepare it i'm like this this is really interesting there's a i didn't I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little kid thinking mincemeat pie. This sounds like, you know, scraps of chicken and beef. And I have no idea what the hell is in it. And I'm like, okay, you know what? Watching you make this recipe made me want to try it. So I'm like this. And then finding out that you work with a lot of other ancient recipes, historical recipes really fascinated me. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk about how you got into that. But... I found out through talking with you that you were also a writer, (laughs) so have you always been creative? I mean, what, what, what were you into as a kid? Was it more writing? Was cooking interesting to you when you were younger? How did you get into so many creative endeavors, so many different creative endeavors?
2: So as far as cooking goes, the funny thing is like, I come from a, uh, like a very professorial family. Like both my mother and father were college professors. Okay. My father was a molecular biologist. My mother was a, was a microbiologist. Oh wow! And, and my dad um, taught me like basic chemistry through cooking when I was like a little kid. Um, <laughs> my whole like childhood was a lot of this, like let's learn stuff. Yeah. My, my father was this, was This incredibly knowledgeable person who is incredibly patient and really good at explaining things. So, the funny thing is, if you asked him a question, he would sit you down and give you a really long answer. And if you needed to know a bunch of, like, additional information before you could understand it, he would teach you that first. Oh, wow. So, that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of the the, the, the background that I have, um, is this very science sciencey kind of thing. And when I grew up, I was assuming I was going to be a scientist. And then I got really interested in like movies and literature and music and that kind of fun stuff. And my father actually died. I grew up with my father and he died when I was very, very young. I was 17. Oh, wow. Um, so I kind of raised myself and did a very bad job of it. <laughs> But I had like endless fun that. in uh, <laughs> in college. I studied film in college, and I worked in the film industry for a bit. Then I oh wow I transitioned into writing. Where where uh, did you study film? film. Uh, at University of California, San Diego, which is not particularly a great film school, but I did it because I did this weird thing where I co-enrolled in college when I was in high school, then stealthily dropped out of high school and <laughs> didn't graduate from high school, but did graduate from college. Oh, my God. So, that's amazing. Yeah, it was very silly.
1: Um, <laughs> my kids would I love got, to figure out how to do that right now.
2: Well, I found out there's there's in California at the time, there was no four year requirement for anything but English to enter the California school system. Uh, university system. So I made a deal with my English professor that if I read the entire canon that he was able to, um, you know, like teachers pick from a group of books and they say, Oh, we're going to read this one and this one and this one, Yeah, you know, but he said, if I read the entire thing and, um, just came in once a week and talked to me. He passed me.
1: Oh my gosh!
2: So he passed me, and I you know, just stayed in college. It was very weird. It was a tricky little. It was an end run. Around, That's uh, fascinating.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> but um, wow. Yeah, so it was a super. I was a film nerd, and then I like went into working, and you know, I made TV commercials for a bit, and okay. then I segued into writing, and that drove me absolute bananas. I wrote a bunch of you know like schlocky stuff for like the sci-fi channel
1: i was gonna say i, I see four screenplays yeah. I lock the apocalypse actually starring sandra Bernhard, which is pretty cool yeah who
2: i actually who i actually met the one time and i was i was totally i was i was all geeked out about it yeah.
0: <laughs> so Metis- darling
2: i love the script okay. i'm like sure sure you did <laughs> sure you did Thanks, Sandra. um, She was awesome. Um, I mean, the the problem is, yes, I wrote a bunch of films. I wrote a bunch of films that sold. I wrote a bunch of films that got made. I wrote a bunch of films that I was proud of. But I never managed
1: to do all those things at once. (laughs) (laughs) Which was kind of soul-destroying. I can imagine. But you know what? It's a lot more than... than I ever got I mean I, I've I've got some friends out in LA that I've I've written for them for a few years and kind of stopped because nothing ever went anywhere so the fact that you got any one of those things done is just, is, I think is awesome
2: it was it was an odd ride I'll, I'll give it to um, but so then I basically had a kind of a crisis that I moved to like this crazy farm in the middle of nowhere and learned to bake bread oh, okay well, and, and the thing is, I had always cooked, and I had always really, really liked cooking, and really enjoyed. It was like I'm a terribly anxious and depressed person, and like cooking was like the one time that was just really, really fun. And there's an immediacy to cooking that is the exact opposite of like writing.
1: Oh, yeah, I can I can so, understand that.
2: And I, and I still do write, although I mostly do it for myself now and like write crazy books and stuff like that. Although we've recently sold a historical cookbook to Rizzoli Press, who are totally amazing. And we're super excited about that. And it comes out in like a year and a half. So
1: I can't <laughs> wait to find out about that. So we yeah, we're- tell you, but
2: that's That's really cool. That's one of the things that takes a lot of my time right now. But yeah, so I. I I sat on this farm for six months and then I came to New York and I went to pastry school and studied French pastry because I figured that was like the closest thing to like chemistry and science, which I was comfortable with.
1: Okay. You know? Okay.
2: And while I was doing that, I started like, you know, I got really interested in like the molecular gastronomy, like uh, stuff. Oh yeah. I I trained at a... Famous molecular astronomy restaurant here in New York, and they trained at a, you know in fine dining. And for a second, I thought I wanted to do that, and then I realized that I wanted to have a life and still be able to write stuff. Right? Yeah. And <laughs> and that's not really doable if you work in those kind of restaurants. These places are amazing, and a lot of my friends came out of there. But like, I realized I wanted to do something for myself. So first, yeah. I started this crazy supper club out of my apartment that was like fine dining supper club and super like ridiculous precious tiny 10 course meals and stuff yes which was great and incredibly fun (laughs) and then along the way i met so edible history which is the primary thing i do now is a primarily was originally a supper club where we would pick a period in history and kind of explain that through food made from Primary source recipes from original documentation from ancient Rome to 10th century Baghdad to 19th century New York. Right. Um, and it was actually originally started by my friend Victoria, who actually posted an ad saying, like, I need a chef for this historical food project called Edible History. She's a historian and my obviously okay. my co-author with the book, and right. she does edible history with me. And we met and it was just an instant, absolute geek fest. Like we'd watched all the same like ridiculous programs and we listened to the same history podcasts and we just were really interested, you know, in all the same stuff, you know.
1: Okay. Um, so before we get too too deep into that, right. I, I got to find Sir. out this, Sir. this question. So you left LA mm-hmm. and you, how did you just start baking bread? Where did you go? Where, how did you start decide that a hey, that was what you were going to do and, and, and how did you find the place to do it is i guess is more the question
2: um i'm gonna dodge this question a little bit okay but it was like one of these weird like cooperative farms in the middle of nowhere oh, okay that you can just go to um and live there and there's no cell service and it's very peaceful and it's a very controlled environment and i knew that they had like a big kitchen program and i knew that they had a bakery and I was kind of in the back of my mind. I was deciding whether cooking was something that I wanted to pursue professionally. Okay. Um, and I figured that was a good way of getting away from everything, reading a lot, and like just learning, like the, the the real basics of cooking and baking. And and there's something really fun about bread. Like bread is like nothing else. Bread is like having puppies. They're just these <laughs> weird little things that grow, and they're adorable. You know. <laughs> Uh, I've never heard anybody describe it
1: like that. That's Oh, but,
2: it's it's this weird magical process where you take like three or four ingredients and you make this vast you know, number of different kinds of loaves and it's and yeah. form yeah. them and shape them and they grow and you like bake them. It's really fun and it's really relaxing. And it's just, it's, it's just, you know, it's it's a good thing. It sounds
1: just right. like puppies, except for the baking part. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, you know. It's that, a fair point. <laughs> depends on the menu, really. Yes. But, so, when did you know it was time to leave? And and how did you get to New York and and, and in the fine dining world from uh, what what it sounds like a collective? Well, like, I knew
2: I was going to, like, I the decision I was making was whether to go to cooking school. So mm-hmm. I made the decision and yeah. I, you know, and I went to a cooking school, went to a, a French pastry program yeah. and that was so much fun. Yeah. It was just such, that was a, it was a great transition from the farm, you know, just to do that. Like that, that worked out really, really well for me. I was still kind of putting my head back together and it really, you know, it really worked out and I was still writing and doing other stuff. You know, I always juggle a little bit.
1: Have you always been a a fan of history in general or is it? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. I've always really been a big, like, I've always been very interested in history and science and literature and like, I think history gives you a kind of, critical thinking grasp on the world better than a lot of other things i mean sort of like basic basic hard sciences i just i'm kind of flabbergasted with people walking around and not understanding how things work but that's just me
1: yeah <laughs> well and you know you had scientists as parents right so
2: it's like kind of a you know i kind of come by it honestly yeah. that way um but yeah no i've I'm, I'm always been very very interested in, in history it's kind of very relaxing to understand stuff and kind of gives you a kind of s- breadth of understanding the world.
1: When did you start discovering a love for historical recipes?
2: I think it was something that I first kind of stumbled upon when I, started, when I started thinking really seriously about food. Like the two things that I started to really read a lot about and investigate was like the really technical aspects of cooking, kind of this very science-y and like modernist way of like looking at Cooking also because yeah. the really funny thing about a lot of like stuff that we consider like modernist cuisine, a lot of the time it's just applying pastry techniques to savory food. Oh, wow. You know, really? It's like, oh, you measured in grams. It must be a modernist. Like, oh, it's just <laughs> measuring stuff. But it's really weird. Like, they did the kind of like messing with textures in that way. So I was super interested in that. And then I got really interested in kind of like what the progression, you know, like if that's the future of food the question becomes, like, what's the past? Where, where did that come from? Where did that come from? You go back, you know, it's easy to say, oh, that's what the 80s food like. And you start thinking, oh, what's the 50s food like? And then, yeah. oh, what's the 30s food like? And, you know, you start, you know, like, what's class food? And then you find these crazy through lines, these things you would never imagine like mince pie is a very actually weird example that you, okay. you know, that it basically goes back to the middle ages when pies were called coffins were inedible vessels just made with bread and water that you put stuff in an age before refrigeration, you put a bunch of meat in something, you seal it, you bake it, right? With uh-huh. a bunch of, if you have some sugar and spice, amazing. And that actually is now sterile inside and you can, it will last much, much longer than just leaving it
1: out on the counter ah i never realized that that's fascinating
2: yeah that it just became you know i actually have two middle aged recipe one and the one i did was more of a 19th century one and you know and now when you get a mince pie if you go to store and buy mince meat there's no meat in that like what's weird about mine is i still make it with you know with some meat and some meat fat but you would never know it like i could serve you that pie and you'd never know there was meat in it. It tastes like Christmas. It tastes oh. like the holidays. It's just, it's, it's really lovely. Oh, but it, you'd okay. never think, oh, this has meat in it. But like, you know, if you, if you go back and have one from the Middle Ages, there's a lot more meat in it, you definitely know. But okay. it's still, like, it would still have the same kind of spiced profile.
1: That's fascinating, because when I think of, and, and I'm sure a lot of people are this way, when I think of old recipes, like you mentioned, 30s, 40s, 50s, I'm thinking of, you know, salmon in gelatin and yeah. some of these dis- aspect, definitely yeah some of these dis- things that just sound absolutely disgusting but i was yeah. looking at some of the menus on the website that you have and it's it's amazing like for example the uh the tudor feast or the 15th century <laughs> italian feast i mean i never would have thought about some of this stuff i i don't think of older recipes i guess I, Outside of things like suckling pig and, and and roasting meats and stuff, I don't almost I don't, you almost don't think of them as edible anymore. It's 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 a weird.
2: It's really funny, and of course, like we do, pick and choose stuff that we think does work for a modern palate. And once again, there's no way of knowing if what I'm doing is exactly you know I do I do a ton of research and I look at the scholarship, but. I think a lot of my things are, are a reasonably good window to the past. But no, there's food, there's ancient Roman food that's so sophisticated and so smart and totally delicious. And oh my God, don't get me started on 10th century Baghdad because <laughs> the cookbook from that is literally the most mind blowing thing you'll ever. It's really? insane. And it's also chock full of poetry, which is really awesome. Oh, wow. It's, But it's also like you read that cookbook reads like maybe a 17th or 18th century Western cookbook. It's literally, it's got weights and measures. Like if you, if you look at a cookbook from the middle ages in Europe, it's like take this and this and this and maybe a handful of this and put it together, cook it, serve it forth. And that was the whole recipe. Like 500 years before that in Baghdad... Which and this is this is a bag that of like Harun al Rashid and like Thousand and One Nights and right, you know yeah. beautiful people. Even technically, that's a couple hundred years before this. But we're talking about a super high culture. You you have this giant book that's ten times as long as anything being written in the West at this point. Yeah, with hundreds of recipes, with weights and measures, and specific you know do it this. Wow. It opens with a here's all the tools you will need for a kitchen. Here's all the basic techniques. It's like so ridiculously wow. modern it's it's
1: genuinely amazing and some of those recipes are really amazing that's incredible so. I'm, I'm all, all my kids have taken latin in high school and they all have to do a project and my oldest who's graduating this year a couple of years ago in her at, in, in her first year of latin she had to do she she, she picked a a, a, rec- a roman recipe to cook Apicius. Yes, I, I, well, I believe I, I'm assuming be that's where it came from. I guarantee
2: it's a biz. That's the, the oldest cookbook I, in the world. It's a yeah. It's yeah. definitely Apicius. So yeah. it,
1: it was some weird chicken dish. I don't remember what it was called. I don't remember if it was pollo f- uh, frontonionum or whatever. But it was chicken and it had the grapes in it, and it had. It was made with this. Oh, there, you, there you go! <laughs> was, I'm waving the book it, at him, Podcaster. It is um, right in arm's reach. That's fantastic. Well, but- I, I just finished.
2: I just finished my ancient Rome character. It's actually really funny. Here's a, a, a funny Latin thing you have to tell your daughter that. That um, I realized, and I was doing a chicken recipe. Oh no! I was, doing I was doing the beets recipe that I that I worked together with the with the chicken recipe, okay. and the translation in English was beets cooked in mead. It was chicken cooked Ooh. in mead. I can't one of them is cooked to me. I I just did this and I, now I can't remember. Maybe it's both. So, and the funny thing is, this is the funny thing, and I was thinking about this, because mead is normally a northern European wine that's made from honey. Like you you dilute honey with water and you let it ferment and right, yeah. you know, it becomes it becomes wine. And you know, I, I actually don't read Latin particularly. And so I was working from a translation and I cooked this and I thought really carefully, and I'm like, do we have mead in Rome? They have a lot of honey wines, like wines that are mixed with honey and spices. Yeah. We did the Mead, and I did a little research, and then I went and actually looked at the Latin translation, and the word was mulsum. which was translated as Mead. But it's actually honeyed wine. And I'd already written the damn recipe, and I had to go back and change oh, it. Oh, wow. Because the Latin was mistranslated in my copy. Oh, it's amazing wow. translation regardless, but it's kind of old. That is so, amazing. Yeah. If- so, we had your daughter remember it then. She oh. fixed it for me. Oh, yeah. They-
1: <laughs> well, we had our own mishap with that because it called for the use of garum. Right. Which... And I have a
2: whole head bar in my cookbook of garum. Oh,
1: which we we were told. It, I mean, it's a like a fermented fish it's, guts. You know,
2: well, here's the funny thing: this is a and everybody people love to be horrified by garum because yes, it is fermented fish guts. But do you like Thai food at all?
1: Yes, I love Thai food.
2: You like the funk of Thai food? Yes. You like that fish sauce they put in Thai food? Yes exactly the same thing that's well see that's the thing that's what we <laughs> use
1: as because a, as a, I'm like you're we're not ferment- spending six months fermenting fish guts right so, you can so- actually
2: buy artisanal garum but honestly really? artisanal garum and like Fish sauce you buy at at the store, almost the same.
1: Well, here's here's the thing that the issue that I had with it was more the measurement because I'm not sure exactly how much we were supposed to use, but I'm pretty (laughs) sure we used a shit ton more than we were supposed to. Yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) Because all of a sudden my house smelled like a cannery, and (laughs) (laughs) I mean it tasted fine. But you had to get over the smell in the kitchen. Yeah, and my it's... daughter brought it to school, and nobody would try it. I oh, ate that's too bad. I did I ate it and I told and she tried it. and we both liked it, actually. But the smell was just yeah It's a little
2: bit too much. I mean, it's, it's a very strong it's a very strong. You know, sauce, yeah. you, you don't smell like, when you walk into a Thai restaurant, it doesn't smell like fish sauce. No. Although when you open a bottle of fish sauce to cook with it, when you put it in something really hot for a moment, you get this yeah. blast of, you know, but then it's just, it's just pure, you know, umami and like goodness.
1: Getting back to, to your career, sure. and not my daughter's <laughs> uh, Latin project. You actually end up working with Wiley Dufresne who is just Yeah, when I
2: said I worked at a, I, you know, um I I trained there. I was, you know, so I tried okay. what's called a stage where you like go and you you get trained. Okay. Um at at WD 50 WD 50. Yeah. When that was completely mind blowing and amazing. Like that was really hard but really fun and I really learned a huge amount. That is, I can I
1: was cuz I was going to ask you I mean is, is that what you learn there is that applicable to what you're doing now with because he does a lot of like you're talking about modern things with his desserts
2: some stuff yeah i mean i was i was in uh malcolm um who then went to noma um, oh okay and um there's you know some of my approaches will be the same and the funny thing is like you also have to remember that like you know Chefs in the past, you know, anyone who was you know doing the kind of food that we do was ahead of like a royal kitchen or at least a noble kitchen, and they probably had thirty people or fifty people or a hundred people working for them, uh. including horrible jobs that was just turning a spit for eight hours.
1: Right. Oh God. Yeah, making garum. Hours.
2: Or yeah, making garum. <laughs> but um, the funny thing is, you know, like one of the great kitchen innovations. Was replacing the spit boy, the boy who turned the spit, with a dog that walked on a treadmill that turned the spit. I was a really you know, it's like the latest modern kitchen convenience. Mechanization. Small dog.
1: Um, Man, now you had a small dog in your kitchen, you get shut down. (laughs) This is also
2: true. So, I mean, I'll often do stuff like I think, even if you're just a home cook, it's really instructive. To like just for fun, go make a cake with just a spoon, you know. Like if, if you read like Mary Beecham or something, like what is like nineteenth century cookbooks, they're like, and now beat it by hand for twenty five minutes. Yeah, you try doing that sometimes. Horrendous. I tried making you know. whipped
1: cream once by hand, and that was horrible.
2: Yeah, like that's it's really like, funny. There is like a paste, pastry guys are like, you must
0: always make whipped cream by
2: hand, or at least we'll always finish it by hand. We'll get it almost there, and we'll be very persnickety about finishing it by hand. Right. It took, me, it took me a while not to have to do that. I I felt guilty <laughs> if I used to machine to make it. But yeah, like making making some of those things by hand is really you know grinding there's this traditional 2 thing called a March pain, which is basically ground almonds and sugar. Okay. And like making a significant one by hand is an absolute nightmare and I did it once just to see it. It was <laughs> it's a lot of things like that that are worth doing once just to see like, wow, this is really difficult. But then it's yeah. like the head chef once again isn't probably doing that. Like, like even in my day job, I don't do a, a huge amount of that kind of hand work. I, right. I have people for that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly.
1: Um, I've got a question about the supper club Scene. So, so, your bio states that you are you're in the underground supper club scene. What was or is an underground supper club scene? Because I'm I'm imagining like a culinary version of Fight Club or something.
2: Well, I mean, in a sense, yes. So, like my first my first supper club, um, which was the crazy, precious, you know, fancy pants, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> yeah, ten course tweezers on everything one was. I mean, the thing is you know, you can't legally charge to invite people over to your house to eat. You can't, you can't legal, you know, right. Not that I did any of these things. Right. And of course, but like, you know, you can't run a restaurant out of your house. Yeah. Basically, but people do, you know, and it's fun. So you just advertise in various places and you sell tickets through a thing and people come and, you know, and you serve them food and hopefully they don't die. And, (laughs) you know, and, and there's a surprising number of them. And a lot of people are trying to get restaurants and a lot of people, are guys like me who are doing it, you know, who has a day job cooking something else okay. and is doing it to like enjoy, enjoy something, you know, and I kind of stopped that once I got really into the historical food thing, because that just really clicked and we were having, you know, we got some really good press and we were making really crazy stuff. So it was a lot of fun. I don't know. So-
1: <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So how did you get hooked up with your partner with Edible History? So literally, she ran
2: an ad saying, like, looking for a chef who's interested in historical cooking. And I was like, oh, that's me. (laughs) And we met and literally it was one of those just instant click things like we wanted to do. we We had a very, very similar vision. And we really shaped that vision together. Like we had this joke that it was like we wanted food to be the gateway drug to history. Oh, want people to taste something like I can't. It's hard to imagine a better way of really connecting. If you're eating a meal that's the same as someone ate five hundred years ago, and then the way it works is as the courses come out, she comes out and gives you a, a thumbnail of the history of this time. Okay, which is really really good at and then i come out and i do a couple little like culinary things like i talk about garam for example as we discussed or i talk about you know these crazy things or like i talk about pies which are totally amazing and like the whole the Tudor one people you've you've heard about the you know the 420 blackbirds baked in a pie yeah which is totally a thing really another Another one they really like. See, Pluters loved spectacle. They loved, you know, food as theater. Ah. And pies were these giant, you know, cooking vessels. You could just put stuff in them, right? So you'd bake a pie, and you just take the top off and you put something in it. Like a, a really popular one was live frogs. So you bring it to the table, <laughs> and you take the top off, and all these frogs jump out <laughs> and run across the table. Another popular one was a dwarf who would come out playing an instrument. In a pie. He had a quite large pie. So to give an idea of how big a pie can be. You can look this up, but okay. famously, and I think this was at the meeting between, it's like the field of cloth of gold, and it was a meeting between the English king and the French king in France, and they had a, they had a fountain of spewed wine, oh, and wow. they had a pie that was admittedly a very large pie that they opened, and they had a bunch of musicians inside who then began to play. Oh, my God
1: god that's amazing it's good to be the king yes it is. <laughs> that's that's historical right there mel brooks didn't know what he knew what he was talking about <laughs>
2: Exactly. so yeah so i come out a little bit and i talk and mostly victoria talks and people eat the food and people i think they get some sense of connection with the, their past and hopefully they then go and you know think i want to know more about whatever era that is or just history in general just to get a sense of like we try to come at it from this very inclusive this very like modern you know we don't talk about you know kings and battles and stuff we talk about the habits of people you know okay and what it's like to walk through a roman market and what rome Uh was actually like and ideas about that and and we do you know you want to throw in like yeah people really did like gladiators killing each other but you know Hey, we like football. That's exactly what she does. Exactly the example that she used. I would have said, I would have said MMA,
1: but you know, yeah, see, I haven't gotten into MMA that much yet. So, Oh, it's <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know what? I'm going to have to have you on and uh, Kelly Scott from failure. The drummer from failure. He, oh, sweet. He's a huge MMA fan. So, I've, actually, what you need
2: is to find a sumo fan that I can talk to. because I'm, I'm a really irritating oh, sumo fan. I will. Okay. So sumo rest looks amazing. Don't even get me started. I actually, so cool. I,
1: I watch, my dad used to work for a <laughs> Japanese company back in the 80s. So I used to watch, I used to actually watch some. But oh, cool! Yeah, I watch, I watch.
2: It's the only sporting event that I consistently watch. Actually, just because I'm a complete weirdo.
1: Yeah, but it's totally. It's totally great. I only like college sumo wrestling. <laughs> I don't know those, those pro guys are doing it all for the money. Uh,
2: so. uh, oh, you had, yeah. the, I'm, I'm totally not a sports guy. I'm just I have this weird affinity for sumo. It's, it's Also, my day job is I cook for Major League Baseball. Oh, that's right. It's, it's a huge amount of what I do as my day job. And I know nothing about baseball. At all.
1: <laughs> but don't tell anybody. Uh, I know. Mean. Well, we us keep that out. So, <laughs> so how do you find the recipes that you use for Edible History?
2: This is one of the things that's like we are so ridiculously lucky and spoiled. To live in the era we do now, because like I remember, like when I was younger, one of my favorite things to do is I just would haunt libraries and just do weird research and stuff. And I was always looking for weird books on weird things. And, and it was like, you know, there was this time when you could you could know more than other people because you you were willing to put the legwork in. Yeah. And now it's crazy because like people should be ashamed for not knowing stuff because yeah. it's like it's there at your fingertips. Like just press a button; it's just right there. Yeah. So
1: and it's not on Buzzfeed.
2: <laughs> so the truth is, most of these, and, and once again, when I do historical cooking, I work from original documentation, often in translation, but original, you know, like for me to do it, I have to have, with one exception to the cookbook, but generally I'm working from a cookbook or an actual recipe that I find, and a huge amount is online. Some of the most spectacular cookbooks wow. in the world are either online, or at least you can buy them. The 10th century Baghdad one is not online and it's a little expensive, but it's really worth it. But like, if you want your mind blown a little bit, there's, you can look up the Epicurean, which is the cookbook uh, from, it was originally like published in like 1880 or something from the head chef of Delmonico's. I've heard of it. When Delmonico's was like, you know, the fanciest restaurant in America, basically. And it was everyone in New York. was actually at one point there were seven different Delmonico's. Oh, really? But, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was like, it was a chain. <laughs> but, <laughs>
1: hey,
2: uh, go America. It was, but this cookbook, and it's it's online, there's PDFs. You can just look at it, you can just Google it, find uh-huh. it, look at it. It's really worth looking at. Okay. Because it's also, it's in two volumes. They're each like a thousand pages, oh, heavily illustrated. It's just, the, it's, it's such, such an, a ridiculous level of cuisine, you know, like, like wow. they were doing stuff then that was still so sophisticated and so difficult. And they're really into these incredibly, and, and I, I did these at a dinner once, these incredibly complex cold dishes, oh, okay. this, like, stuff, this which was considered, you know, like the height of like the test of, of a chef's ability would be, you know, this kind of stuff. And okay. like, so the, the dish that I did was, it's basically you take a quail and you bone it out, which is really difficult. Just to do a lot of them is hard. Right. And you fill it with like truffled force meat and some foie gras and some ham. And you bake it in a mold. So it's a little semicircle, right? And okay. you take it out of the mold and then you put um this heavy white sauce or chauffeur sauce back in the mold and you chill you it again in the mold then you take it out of the mold and you decorate the top with this elaborately cut truffle and then you put the uh, aspic the stuff you made fun of with the yeah. salmon <laughs> yeah. which can actually be quite good um, <laughs> and you put it back in the mold with that and you get this weird it, it, looks, it looks like a pastry. It just looks like a bomb. It looks like this okay. very, very fancy pastry. And it, I mean it's, just, it's technically just a very, very difficult process. Wow. And that was incredibly fun. The, the funny thing is, technically, I only did half the recipe because the other half of the recipe, is, it then says, now take fat and wax and carve this holder for the little guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> That look like griffins holding scallops and there's just a picture of this thing with griffins holding scallops oh my like, god that's beyond beyond my ability wow I did once make a uh, St. Agatha bust about three feet high oh, um, like- out of bread and um, and sugar who's a Catholic saint who yeah carries her breasts around on a plate because she was martyred by having her breasts torn off and then magically healed by St. Peter
1: i think i saw a picture of that yeah it's in it's in vogue okay that <laughs> that was something else man yeah that was cool do you have a a, a problem finding some of the ingredients for some of these uh sometimes things?
2: actually yeah sometimes they're quite hard to source and sometimes sometimes you have to use some kind of an analog um the funny thing is certain of these herbs that aren't Sold, and once again, I live in New York, so there's just some amazing places here, and you can yeah. get a ton of stuff off Amazon. But I literally had to order some of my herbs from a like a witchy. <laughs> 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 like it came saying like moon magic on it. And oh stuff. my god! Um, and it was just it was like a Roman herb that was very common in there. And there's other stuff like there's another roman herb that there's this huge academic debate about what it actually was because oh. it actually went extinct and it was so important it's called laser or silphium, and it was so important to their economy like their roman coins that just you know they just have a picture of silphium on it oh wow um, but it uh, it's gone now like there is no so there's a lot of debate about what is it it's most people agree that it's probably pretty similar to asafoetida, which is a, a root herb that you get in um, Indian cooking a lot.
1: Okay, that was actually um, one of the things I was going to specifically ask you about.
2: <laughs> what?
1: The asafoetida, because I had no idea oh, yeah. a, how to pronounce it or what it was.
2: It's that it, it's it's a very specific taste. That When you smell it, you instantly know. It's that taste from Indian food that people often call pungent. Okay. It's this it's very... Like it's not hot or it's just pungent. I'm trying to think what it's like, but it's like what you smell. You think, oh, it's that Indian food smell, okay, and not like the curry smell. It's not like a garam masala, it's right? Like, you know, it has this very specific pungent. And my recollection is it is it's the sap from a root that is then dried.
1: Oh wow, I believe. See, because I was looking at the like I said, I was looking at the menus and I was just fascinated by them and some of the. The items on the menu, like the, the asafoetida, fermented maracuya, and leite de tigre. <laughs> those are actually so, so. Those are actually so. Fermented maracuya is just
2: passion fruit. Oh, okay. And it's just the Spanish word f- for passion fruit, and that's my for my pre-Columbian ceviche because like pre- pre-Columbia is a very fraught term, and I don't usually use like. There's this idea of you know, what people call, they used to call it the Colombian exchange or the Colombian circulation. Okay. I like to call it the Atlantic circulation, but it's, just, but it's uh, and I think like a lot of food nerds love to like tell people, you know, before, you know, the new world was discovered, that's in quotes, yeah. um, Italian food didn't have any tomatoes. And the Irish people didn't have any potatoes because right. those are totally from the New World. And I mean, other stuff is easy to forget. Szechuan food didn't have hot peppers. It had Szechuan peppers, but didn't have no capsicum peppers, no spicy peppers except black pepper, oh, pepper wow. which is a totally different plant. Existed. So, and then you know, turkeys, pumpkins, and then we, you know, there was no. Coffee there, all all these things that are now grown in that part of the world, like coffee. Coffee comes from Africa, you know.
1: Right, right, right.
2: So, but the but the funny thing is, it's you know, people. That's easy to remember, but then you forget that, like, we're talking about Mexican food with no limes. Oh wow! There was no citrus in there was no citrus in, in Central America. That's I, all from that's all from Europe. I from, didn't I know forget that. Where citrus is originally a dish that was bought by the Spanish. Wow. So the funny thing, so they did have. So I did this dish where I had three different. Oh man, I have to say this again I'm drawing a blank. You know, those things, the stuff with the same, you know? Um, so I did this dish, right? Three different ceviches. Okay. And I had a ceviche that was quote unquote pre columbian like before the conquistadors arrived and brought citrus and, what, and they would actually take fish and they would marinate it in fermented passion fruit juice, which is very sweet and gets, gets oh. pretty it's pretty acidic and will actually cook the fish with its acid right. the way you know they do with a modern one with like lime juice yes right right the other one they would do is um oh it's fermented spit oh that's another that, well it's, it's actually fermented usually cassava or many where you know um and, and they still you'll see that in, in Peru where they make this uh this drink that's mildly alcoholic and you're using your spit because you know the your spit turns starches and sugars it's it, the same way like when you malt um, grains to make beer yeah if you chew if you chew starch it turns the starch into sugar and you keep spitting it out then you have this milky liquid that then you can ferment and you could also preserve fish in it okay i did I not I mean, serve that to anyone
1: yeah but, but that's what they used to do wow i remember now that you mentioned i remember seeing that on on like i don't know anthony bourdain um, or yeah, something they like that always they always
2: it's one of the ones you gotta you know yeah you gotta do it yeah um <laughs>
1: Oh, if you're getting paid to yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: and let's eat the tigre which means tiger's milk it's yeah. just the modern that's just lime juice and like um garlic and stuff that's, that's or it's the liquid a lot of people will drink it like after you marinate the fish in it and they'll just pour off the kind of fishy lime juice and it's all you know it's got lots of onions and garlic and spices and it's delicious and um, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a hangover cure
1: oh wow you know but okay yeah. i never i didn't know that that's fantastic are just
2: like
1: yeah the, the, the liquid from ceviche is technically called leche de but it sounds cool oh yeah it does <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I i i figured leche de but the uh, the fermented maracuyá that my 6 years of yeah. spanish for uh, apparently went out the window <laughs> cuz specific words <laughs> yeah uh, so do you often reject and an, a recipe do you ever look at something and go i there's just no way i can do this or that nobody oh, would yeah. eat this
2: Oh yeah! Oh, I mean, you know, you have to pick and choose. I mean, whether it's the the omelet of brains and rose petals. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that's gonna be good. It's not gonna be a top seller, uh, no. And there's you know, other stuff. Other stuff might be good. That's very hard. To get. It's very hard to get sow's udders these days. Uh, <laughs>
1: I've found. Um, <laughs> you mean you, you can't just get that at the at like the, the I grocery am, store? You know,
2: I have trouble sourcing stuff sometimes, it- but no, there's,
1: there's a lot of stuff, and then there's other things
2: where it just it's just a different taste. But it's hard, to, you know, it's hard to know. I, I go through and i i I try to be as faithful as I can to the recipes, and I and I like when I'm testing recipes, I'll, I'll test a bunch of them. I've gotten pretty good at being able to look at them, saying I have a pretty good idea of what I think this is going to taste like, and whether it's going to be good or whether it's going to be interesting okay. or not. You know, people were making food because they liked it. You know, it's, yeah. it's like most of it's not. There's, I you mean, know, like once again, different cultures have different palates, and there's a lot of stuff in certain cultures that I don't particularly like that are too too strong for me. But but not, not that many. Like I will eat, you know, and I'll try kind of
1: anything oh yeah i'm I'm that way too i'll I'll give just about anything except maybe the fermented spit but i will try just about anything i've actually
2: tried it really and it's fine you know it's 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 fine it's better it's it's a whole lot better than fermented fish that's like that's where i Uh, you know it's like the sewer and stuff like that and the fermented shark oh that one that one I mean, I, like, I, I think the real outliers, what they have in common, are those are from cultures that were, where there's real food scarcity. Yeah. Like the reason the Icelandic people eat fermented shark is there isn't a lot to eat in Iceland in the winter. Right. It like, yeah. really isn't. And, um, and you, that shark can't be eaten raw or cooked. It has to be fermented. Oh, really? It's poisonous. Wow. For a really disgusting reason.
1: Uh-oh. Okay, so what's the reason?
2: It has, a, it has a incredibly high levels of urea in its tissues, which is the stuff we excrete in urine. Right, yeah. So it like... And urea, when, it, it, when, when you leave it, it ferments into ammonia, basically. Okay. Which then kind of send me off gases and stuff. And it's yeah. horrendous. But it's, it, it, you can eat it. It becomes, it becomes, you know, non-poisonous. Wow. But it actually, it would be like drinking, eating unfermented, that kind of shark would be like drinking concentrated piss.
1: Oh, man. And it was just,
2: which is actually unhealthful. Well, yeah. You know, I, to I, do, I, there's a reason why we're excluding that. It is <laughs> kind of <boring>. So.
1: <laughs> oh, man. It's like preparing gout. Yes. Oh, okay, so that brings up a question that I've mm-hmm. actually wondered a lot. How the hell do they f- figure that shit out? Like is it just trial and error or because I think, you know, I like I think that's a question that people
2: ask a lot about a lot of stuff and it almost yes. always has the same answer, I think. I really do. Okay. People were really hungry. Yeah. No, I mean yeah. like I, I suspect it is that someone who was really really hungry and knows that you can't eat that shark, knew wrongly that you couldn't, that you can't, they knew correctly that you couldn't eat it when it was fresh. And they had a really old, rotten one sitting around and they had nothing else to eat. And they're like, I'm starving to death. Fuck it, I'm gonna eat it because starving people will eat anything yeah you know dirt they chew leather they bark off trees you'll just eat anything and they ate it and they were like oh well it's horrendous but like we didn't die i'm actually not hungry anymore and i didn't die yeah you know so then the next time everybody was super starving to death they were like you know last time we did eat that shark and it was okay and like maybe if we let it sit for a really long time we can eat it yeah. I think it's always things. It's always things like that—that that weird kind of trial and error. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's weird to you know remember that like real starvation was a thing through most of human history. Yeah, you know, and even in modern history, I mean, you forget there's Russia's had problems with dietary cannibalism like three times in the in the last century. Wow. So, <laughs> jeez, <laughs> at,
1: least, at least twice. At least I. Three. That's a really good point because I, I, I'm <laughs> thinking. Things like mushrooms, you know, some are poisonous, right. some are hallucinatory. So right. if and that's some an actual Yeah. And some are somewhere in you between. Know. And so I'm just imagining like cavemen just sitting around going, yeah, don't eat that one. Thag ate that one and died. Exactly. So, and, oh, wait, yeah, he ate that one and just went nuts for a couple hours. Yeah. So that was okay. That was fine. Yeah. You know, you also have cook at the uh, James Beard house. Yes. So how um, do you get that invitation? And and how intimidating is that? The funny thing
2: is like, there was a time when, it, when like, it like, it was like, it was one of my dreams. Like I want to cook someday. I shall cook at the, at the beard house. Right. And the truth is anyone can actually just apply, you know, you can, wow. You know, anyone from a restaurant or a cook or anyone, you know, you can send them as an application, and say I'd like to cook there, you know, uh, interesting. you know, and a lot of people do not everybody. I mean, they'll have. I think, I mean, they're closed right now, but they had like over 200 dinners a year, I think. So it's like a lot of people do get to cook there. But like prior to that, like when we were, we did a series at the Museum of Food and Drink. We were their artistic residents. We are actually their first artistic residents. Oh, cool. And we did a bunch of dinners with them. And there's some crossover between them and the Beard House. And there's some of the same people and they know each other. And the director of the Beard House came to one of our dinners and oh, uh, we awesome. talked to her or the director of the culinary program and uh and she was like uh, just a wonderful human being like she was just an amazing wonderful woman and they were like you should really you should really apply you know and we did one and it was it went great it was so much fun and um actually i'll tell you a funny story about that like the most modern solution to it to a 19th century problem in all of history. But yeah, <laughs> okay. so, so we so we did we did one and then we we did another and we you know I uh, really I can't wait to cook there again Um, and I'm sure as soon as they have a I've got this cookbook coming out so we'd like to do some dinner celebrating that oh yeah um, that would be amazing. So true story. So the last the dessert. So we did this uh, dinner that was the history of the 19th century restaurant. Basically everything from like cavern food stuff from the cookbook that I mentioned, the Epicurean. And one of them was the Alaska, Florida, which is a which is the original baked Alaska.
1: Oh, okay.
2: You know? And it's funny. It's like when I was a kid, my mom like thought the baked Alaska was like the most toxic, toxic thing, right. you know? Yeah. And I was kind of like, here, look, I can actually cook this thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I did this original recipe and I made these little individual ones and I made them at my work. and I have a very nice, Freezer at my work is very cold. Okay. I had these little molds, and we went to James Beard House, and like, their kitchen is actually not the greatest kitchen in the world because it's James Beard's old kitchen, and it's an amazing oh, wow. home kitchen, but it's like it's you know like the ovens aren't great, and like this and it's just
1: it's not industrial. You know,
2: they, they they've upgraded it a lot, and it is it's it's like, it's like a small nice little restaurant kitchen but it's not okay it's, it's you know it's not a modern restaurant kitchen and their refrigeration actually wasn't great and their <laughs> freezer wasn't that cold oh like no was, and we go to unmold them like what you do know, is you like wrap them in whipped cream and then you just put them in a boiler nowadays you would just hit them with a torch yeah to torch the meringue on the outside without melting the
1: ice cream okay
2: and they were soft in the ice cream was starting to melt, and I couldn't get them out of the molds. And was I didn't know, and we didn't know what to do. So then we're like, wait. Hey. So there's a bar around the corner that we know this is very modernist bar, and they like okay. fancy cool stuff. Yeah. And they always have liquid nitrogen. Oh. So we're like, quick, run over to the bar, <laughs> tell them like, you know, it's me and my friend John Hut, who's like amazing, amazing chef. Who's he was the chef at MoFad and he's he's teaching robots to cook in Barcelona. Oh and wow. he's just a remarkable, remarkable guy. we Sent somebody over there. They came back with a doer of liquid nitrogen right before service. We just flashed. Look at the whole room fills up with smoke. Oh, that liquid nitrogen smoke. Right, yeah. Everything worked perfectly. It came right out of the molds. We uh, wrapped them in meringue, and them, and sent them out. No, no one was the wiser.
1: Oh, man. That's awesome. But it
2: literally, it was literally the connection, which is not technically a 19th century ingredient. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of that, at Edible History, do you use period implements to cook with her, or is it a modern? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: and the truth, because what I always say no is- No dogs? That, The most well, this is the thing. I would say the most common period kitchen implement throughout history is the slave, Uh, or at least the indentured servant. You know, it's like you know, most Roman cooking was done by slaves. Most you know, most things were done by you know children or like things that I don't you know I, I, that I'm not in favor of yes <laughs> also, I, mostly I'm one guy I usually have an assistant or two you know who I'm usually paying out of my own pocket or their friends or their people who you know want to try their hand at historical cooking yeah, yeah and if you're in New York and you want to uh hit me up absolutely because I, I am recipe testing now and anybody wants to hang out and like do some historical cooking testing oh um, sweet Totally down.
1: I would definitely be in touch. Me and my wife, we, we <laughs> love this. Yeah. It's awesome.
2: It's totally fun. I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. But so, so yeah, I mean, that's the thing is most of these guys, hey, we're cooking for like 200 people or at least 30 people. I think that's one of the things also, it's like, if I'm working from an extant cookbook in an age where, you know, a lot of these things, like before the 17th century, say, a book was a really valuable object. Yeah. And one thing to think about is what, who were most cookbooks written for in like say the middle ages, which is a really interesting question to think yeah. about for a second, because if you're a master chef in the middle ages, you've started as a child, you've been doing this for 25 years, 30 years, or I mean maybe 20 years is people have died. Maybe dead at 40. But if that cookbook has 50 recipes in it, say, or even 100, and the recipes don't have weights and measures like take this put it with this cook it till it is done and serve it for us right how how useful is that book to you as it probably not very useful no so it's probably written for a couple other reasons books were a status item they were like a fountain of knowledge and that was also a time when women were starting to run you know were running these households so it was maybe a tool for the woman of the house to maintain her staff and to control expenditures, you know, uh-huh. because remember, this, you know, if there's spices and stuff, these spices were incredibly expensive. Yeah. Like a really good example. This is, this is probably, this is one of like the, the reasons edible history exists is to answer this one, this one mistake, which is lots of people will tell you that some have heard somewhere that in the middle ages, people used all those spices to cover up the rotten meat. Oh, OK. People, people, I've, I've heard this like a million times, which is if you think about it completely wrong for a bunch of really obvious reasons. First of all, the spices you would use to cover up the rotten taste of meat, which also doesn't necessarily make cover the taste and still make you sick. True.
1: Um,
2: would cost more than the cow. Uh, I mean, that, I black think pepper was worth quite literally its weight in gold in certain times. Like the city of Rome was once ransomed for something like 300 bags of black pepper for a city. Wow. You know,
1: wow.
2: maybe it's 3,000, but still, it's, still, you know, this is incredibly, incredibly expensive stuff. I mean, for, for, for you to be in England getting black pepper or nutmeg or allspice, it comes from an island off the coast of East Asia. Right. That's gone by boat to China or India, then overland through the desert, maybe to Egypt where it took a boat to Venice, and then it got all the way across Europe to England in the Middle
1: Ages. <laughs> 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 that
2: thing is so valuable. And like you grow cows, you have cows. That's true. So that's, that's one reason. The other thing is remember that like, it's not like four people are ever sitting at a table. If you're, if you're rich enough to have spices and own a cookbook, you also have a castle or at least a manor house, right? Yep. So, and you have vassals and servants and you would be served first in eating, but like, there would be 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, 70 people eating at the same meal kind of down the food chain. Right. So there was a lot of meat left over. You butcher a cow, you feed, a, you know, you feed people. It's a good you know? point. Yeah. It, it's not as like if meat like sitting around, you know, yes. and when they did want to preserve it, you'd bake it
1: a pie. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I came full circle with that. one. That was fantastic. Well, <laughs> edible history has ten menus on the website. Do they change very often? Or oh, okay, adding... those are just
2: ones we've done. We occasionally repeat them.
1: Okay. But, um,
2: so, like, our cookbook is coming out. Is and they're, they're mostly different from that, but it's called a history of the world in ten dinners. Okay. So we have ten chapters that are um, each one is a historical period. Oh, okay so they're they're different but it's you know so we'll always be doing doing more stuff like we have some ones that you know the Tudor one is very popular the Silk Road one is great the evolution of the 19th century New York restaurant one is super cool R- Rome is really
1: cool the one where you uh, show a uh, pig to a turkey Yes. That one's interesting. <laughs> yes, that is. A, and it's funny. In the picture, it is a pig to a turkey. Originally, that would, of
2: course, be a pig to a chicken. It was actually a capon, which is a castrated rooster. Right, yeah. Because that recipe is from 1380. Wow. And turkeys had not come to Europe yet. Ah. Yeah. I used the turkeys that wanted to be big, but yeah. it would originally be... And, and the one in the picture that you've seen, it would have been painted green. But that one wasn't.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Man, painting food. I'm not I've never heard of that one before.
2: Well, because it, the, the thing we're discussing is a cock-and-thrice, so yes. it's a mythical animal, and it's once it goes back to this idea that Tudors and Henry VIII loved the cock and you know, they loved the idea that they'd you know, they eaten corpses and, you know, this and that, and they'd run out of things to eat, so, like, I'm going to eat a mythical thing. Uh, so, it wow. was something from, like, mythology, you know, so it was, like, this way of making a monster that he could then eat, that's why it was painted green. Another one that I've done, speaking of painting things, is actually from Halevon, which is, like, a 14th century, I believe uh, French cookbook. Okay. And there's this thing, um, I did. There's also a picture of it in the Vogue article that is usually translated as a helmeted cock. Oh, because it is a, it's a rooster. Okay. Riding a pig. <laughs> With a lance wearing a helmet (laughs) and a shield. I think I saw that at Lollapalooza once. (laughs) Pretty much. And um, in the recipe, it actually says, like, if you're making it for royalty or nobles, you make it silver or gold. And if it's, like, for, like, rich commoners, it's, like... I think it's green. It's like orange
1: or green
2: or something. Oh, red. Oh, wow. <laughs> I made
1: it so. So you cook a lot from history. Do you ever have? Do you ever cook from fiction? Things like Game <laughs> of Thrones. Have
2: sometimes, th- actually, sometimes both, and it's a very funny crossover that I do. And I have. I've done actually. I've done um, Alice in Wonderland, oh, which wow. was I used to this great picture. So. One of the best things from the Alice in Wonderland dinner was, if you remember in Alice in Wonderland, she drinks this drink that changes flavor as she drinks it. And it's all these funny flavors like there's a turkey dinner, yes. and, uh, caramel custard, and cherry this. And and right. what I did, and this is a funny, I, I did it in a totally molecular way. And shout out, just because so someone will point this out, Heston Blumenthal, the guy from Fat Duck, was one, was one of the great molecular Genius chefs in the world also did exactly the same thing that I did, although he he had a better clarification system in his <laughs> incredibly fancy restaurant um, than I did. His actually looked like a single drink that was oh, made, wow. you know. So, what I did is I made a series of gels into each of these flavors. I infused the flavors into a series of gels wow. and then I stacked them into a glass, one on top of the other, and I just told everybody to drink it with a straw. And as you drink it with a straw, First, you taste one thing, and then you taste the next thing, and then you taste the next thing. And oh, the, the, the difference was because my thing, the, they were actually different colors. Hester Blue was all, was perfect pink. They all rolled the same because wow. he had better te- technology than me. Okay. But <laughs> I simply put a label around the glass. You couldn't see.
1: Oh, well, hey, there
2: you go. Yeah, much, you know, that, <laughs> much simpler. That, that um, works so, just as so well. I've done that. A funny thing from the ancient Rome dinner is I do a thing called Tremacchio's Pig, which is um, from uh, Satyricon, which is this uh, satirical, hence the name, yeah. Roman novel by Petronius. Yes. And one of the bits, it's, it's kind of a send up of Nouveau riche you know, Roman dining. Cause Romans had this funny thing and they kept they kept doing the same, they kept doing these things called sanctuary laws, because Romans thought of themselves as like, we rule the world because we're like a martial people and we're tough and right. sleep on the ground on campaign and, and they kept worrying, as, as a, a lot of cultures do, that their like vigor was being sapped by like soft living. Mm-hmm. So they kept like passing these laws like you can't own fish ponds. And you can't wear this kind of disease kind of clothes oh, and you can't have a private chef. You can only have four courses in a meal, not 10. And oh, wow. Very specific laws, which they would then immediately break. And right. they did this <laughs> over and over again. So the Trimalchio feast scene in Petronius is this like send up of this kind of nouveau riche guy who's got a lot of money. He's trying to show off. And one of the famous scenes from it is the, the chef comes out and it was a big roast pig and he guts the pig or he starts carving the pig and the guts fall out and it, the, 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 he was like, Oh, you're a terrible chef. You forgot to gut the pig. I'm going to have you kill, you know? And wow. uh, so the chef is like, <laughs> no, no, I'll do it right now. Just hang on one second. And he starts to work. And then it turns out that all the guts are actually sausages that he's cooked and put uh, inside, inside the pig. Oh wow! So I've done that. I do this as a freestanding gag, where I have a pig like standing up, yeah. like this roast pig standing up, and. I slit the belly open, and I, I, I usually I tie a string to it so it's easier. To, I slit the belly open, and I pull, and all the guts fall out, and the sausage <laughs> We serve it, so that's that is, ancient, awesome. and, and I use an ancient Roman recipe for sausages, but the the dish itself is completely from literature. It's not.
1: It's not okay. So any any like Dr. Seuss things coming up, like three decker t- sauerkraut and toast oh, sandwiches. Like, black. <laughs>
2: but um no, I mean we did we we did a Downton Abbey one once because I like to do like the weird 19th century yeah. stuff. I mean the funny one that's also a funny crossover is for the 19th century restaurant one we did mock turtle soup which is totally a real thing. Yeah yeah. But if you remember in Alice in Wonderland again, you have the mock turtle mm-hmm. at the mad tea party with a with, with a mad hatter and the mock turtle is a big giant sea turtle with a calf's head. Yes. And the reason for that is so turtle soup in like the 19th century was like the it was like the hositotxi food and that was one of the first eras where like you you had a burgeoning middle class and you had people like trying to show off with their home chef and like you know it was it was definitely like you know a social climbing kind of thing to like Uh have fancy food so if you couldn't afford turtle like giant sea turtle they would make mock turtle which is fake turtle and the funny thing is the most prized part of the sea turtle was the gooey gelatinous part around the collar okay so mock turtle soup is basically you take a calf's head and you boil it oh. for like a day um, until <laughs> it just goops, until, okay. it's, until you just peel everything. It's the same as making head cheese basically, yeah. it's it's a soup. Okay. It's just gooey, mushy. It's also quite delicious It's it's a pork stock and it's, it's really
1: good. Okay. Finish,
2: finish with a little sherry. But that's that, that's why that's why the mock turtle in the mad tea
1: party has a has a cap Uh interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's menus at edible history is it something that you make when people Make reservations, or is it something that? No, set? we're like a,
2: we're more like an event. So, like every like we used to do it like every month or every other month. We put out on a newsletter saying we're going to do a dinner. This is what the theme is going to be. Oh, okay. this is how much it costs. And we usually do it for. I mean, the biggest family we did was like 105 people, but normally it's like 30 to 50 people. Okay, you know, um because it, it, it doesn't like make sense to do it for more than that. Also, it does involve it's almost like a theatrical event. Like Victoria comes out and talks through the whole thing. So it's That's not awesome. like we could be a, if we were like a regular restaurant, like she'd be talking every day and it would kind of suck. Yeah. You yeah. know, and we wouldn't be able to write cookbooks and have a day job.
1: So the cookbook, that hmm. sounds fascinating. How, how many, so you said it's like 10, it's going to be 10. It's a history of the world in 10 dinners. How far along are you with it right now? Um, I'm working on the fourth chapter. Okay. It will be out in
2: about like two years. It was just acquired recently. It was, and we had nonfiction books. You do a book proposal, mm-hmm. so we wrote two chapters and the intros and a complete structure of the entire book. A okay. list of every recipe that's going to be in the book uh, and like a mission statement and all this kind of stuff. And then someone acquires it, and then you write the rest of it. Okay. So we'll we we will be delivering it in approximately. So you are to the publisher, and then they they have to you know do all the photography, editing, yeah. and decide when it comes out. So it, it's it's a weird process.
1: So, but, but at this point, you already know what the recipes are going to be.
2: Yes, but I okay. have to. So I'm doing recipe testing uh, right now. Which is why I'm saying if people want to come hang out in the kitchen and <laughs> test some food,
1: come on down. Excellent, excellent. You said it's a it's like a, a history of the word. What what. Where does it start and where will it end? Where it starts
2: is? with ancient Rome. Okay. Uh, I'm going to get this wrong. That's the funny part. <laughs> ancient Rome, 10th century Baghdad. I think the order of the next chapters is either medieval, like medieval Venice and or like medieval Italy. And then... The Silk Road, which is Silk Road, is all the way. We basically go, go from India back to Venice across, and we do like like the Mongol Empire, oh, and uh, we touch on 13th century Baghdad, and then we're doing um, Al Andalus, which is Muslim Spain. Oh. which people forget that you know Spain was a Muslim caliphate for yeah 700 years. Yep, doing that. The Colombian exchange for the Atlantic circulation of, of dishes, okay. um, Ethiopia, Oh wow. uh, the, the Ethiopian empire, although the, the meal that we're doing as a famous feast that happened in the 19th century, but we're talking about the history of the Ethiopian empire back to like the fifth century or something. Okay. Um, Versailles.
1: Ooh, wow. That's kind of fun. <laughs> and, um, I'll come visit you when you test that one.
2: Ni- 19th century New York. I hope that's 10. I,
1: that's I wasn't 10. keeping track, but it's close enough. Yeah. So you're going to add any poetry? you going to add any poetry to it?
2: Oh, I, I, I do talk about the poetry for that book. That book is so amazing. Um, <laughs> but
1: perhaps. Ah, I, I know two poets. i yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So where can people keep up with what you're doing? Um, find out the, keep uh, the progress of the, the cookbook and... and
2: Edible History NYC Instagram, I believe. My Instagram, J Rifle, J A Y R E I F E L. I post silly pictures on that, and as I mean, I'm posting all my recipe testing on that.
1: Okay. Um, well, so the photography's beautiful probably, on it too.
2: Oh, thank you. It's just cool.
1: a <laughs> Um We'll see your film oh, backgrounds yeah. coming in because it, <laughs> it the lighting's fantastic.
2: <laughs> oh, those little Instagram folks are great. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that, that's the best, that's definitely the best way to follow our stuff. You can um, look at the Edible History website and um, you can contact
1: us there. Excellent. All yeah. right, man. Well, this has been a blast. I actually learned a hell of a lot. So this is just really cool. Thank you so much. Uh, uh,
2: next, next, I'll talk about the literature stuff.
1: Yeah. <laughs> next time. Well, yeah, we'll get, we'll get, you can get back on. We can talk some sumo. Yeah, sounds too
2: uh, You should, you should you can read my crazy books. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so right, So what what else do you have out there that people can look at? No, I mean I like, you know a couple the short
2: stories published, but uh, you can uh, please don't watch my movies. They're really they're not good. Um, <laughs> The effects look like they're done on like an Atari four (laughs) hundred. I mean, that's what drove me crazy about that whole thing. Is it's like I did, like I did write things I was really proud of. I even sold things that I was really proud of, but those never got made. And the ones that got made are stuff that like I wouldn't want you know anyone to watch. Yeah, kind of of depressing. You know what's funny on on like beat Bobby Flay at the end, the director comes up to me and says, "Look." You're going to say, I'm Jay Rifle, and I just beat Bobby Flay, and you're going to yell it, and if you don't yell it, I'm going to keep you here, and you take after take after take, <laughs> and here you yell it. <laughs> so I scream my head off like a fucking moron. So
1: And it's funny, anyone who, anyone who knows me is just like, that is so not Jay. That I didn't even really Jay. ask you about how that whole process works. Oh, uh, uh, it was really funny, and then they do
2: they then they then do ADR for like hours afterwards. You, you basically retell, you narrate the whole thing, and you go through everything and then you, they do like they have you say little words and phrases yeah and to give them a good um this is really funny to give them a good edit on the like a sound edit they want you to basically to make it easy to edit they want you to say something with a hard like a hard consonant right. at the end so they go now to say like so i won carrot and you, and you say yes and carrot oh wow your rifle carrot and you just do this for for like an hour. Oh that my! Whole, that
1: whole shooting day was like fifteen hours. All right, so I, I've got I've got a question about this because I've seen some weird recipes on that show yeah you know yours yours was weird but i've seen some other I've, I've seen ones where i swear to god they did it sounds like they just made it up then and there just to be it
2: has public. to be something that people that's a, that's a standard recipe that people have heard of it has to be something like that and the way it works is you submit five recipes basically that's it's what i was three or five it's three or five i forget you submit three or like you do an interview and you submit three or five recipes and then they they pick one okay and they say, like, we'd like you to do this recipe. And then you send them the recipe. So, because they assemble all you, if you need a weird ingredient, they yeah. assemble that for you. Because I've seen um, that, when
1: I'm like, there's no way they've got this weird-ass cheese just sitting no, there.
2: No, like, they, you tell them, you give them the exact yeah. recipe, you tell them exactly, like, I, I told them, like, I want port, I want cheese, you know, I want brandy, I want these specific things, I need dried cherries, I, like, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, you tell them beforehand exactly what you need, so they have it there. Yeah. But they do, like, that show is legit, though, in terms of, like, they... He, he is doing that like he doesn't know it's yeah. not a, it's not a setup and they're like don't say anything like when you're near him like we don't want him to figure out you know it's like i started to say something they're like, Shoot they're like <laughs> so the judge is a monster I mean, he's really he's oh, he's legit like he really is that good he, it's very impressive i can never do that there you
1: know? are there are a few celebrity chefs and all that that i would just love to. i've eaten at some of their restaurants but i would love to eat something that they themselves made and yeah. you know he's one of them so yeah th- but the, the other guy,
2: w- w- when I was in shock, one of the judges was like Jeffrey Zakarian. Yes. And like everything he said, I was like, God damn it, you're fucking right.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: like, like, I, I was actually very impressed with him. He was very cerebral and he, it, he just, he was, you know, he wasn't riffing, he wasn't playing to the crowd. He was just like, this is,
1: you know, these are the issues. This is good. This is bad. And you're like, yeah, you're you're right. He knows his shit. I have a lot lot of respect for him too. So So the the judging on like Beat Bobby Flay, when they do the cuts back to the chefs, you can tell that, you know, they're like smiling when they, they, are the judges, are you guys separated? So the judges cannot see the reaction so that they know, they don't know whose dish is who, or are they just sitting there and, Cause I've... for which for, for which bits when you um... like when they're when they're eating when the judges are eating the uh the dish that that's up against Bobby, yeah. You'll see them saying, "Oh, this uh, this was cooked perfectly," and then you'll see the the chef that made it like big smile on the face, or you're like hmm. Those are all cut. Yeah, it's all it's all cut. It's all cut back
2: and forth. It's all you know, and, and
1: like a bunch of that stuff. Yeah. Cause I was wondering if the judges can actually see the chef's reactions because that would be a, for me that would be a dead giveaway. I've, you know, obviously. I can't. I
2: know. I think no. I think they actually do the. I'm trying to remember exactly. I think they do the actual judging when you're, I can't remember if you're there or not. That's really funny. (laughs) At that point, I was just like, I was tired and it was a blower. I can imagine. Um, And there is a lot of weird, you know, a lot of weird back and forth and hurry up and wait. And, you know.
1: How much time is there between when you're going up against the other competitor and going up against Bobby?
2: I think it's like half an hour.
1: Okay. That's not not that
2: bad. It's not that much time yeah it's
1: like like half an hour an hour like you just chill for a second that's not that bad you you just do the next one awesome well I I, I can talk to you about this shit all day long so thank you so much
2: that was so much fun man I really had a great time